Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. Susie, something that you said during that interview caught my ear. You were saying that you'd been at a talk and it made you really think about the way that you approached racism. Yeah, I did actually. And uh, it was a few years ago. I went to the Women of the World Festival with one of my daughters and we were desperate to go and see the Black Lives Matter founder, one of the founders called Patrice Cullors. And she was there on the stage explaining quite a bit about why she decided to start this movement. And I have to tell you, Linda, she was she was really good at being able to explain why this all came about and and making us feel that we as individuals had to do something about it. It wasn't just about being a collective organisation. We had to not be so passive. As white people, and I came out of that talk both enlightened, wanted to know more and absolutely felt a little bit uncomfortable about myself. Not not awfully. I didn't come out thinking, oh gosh, you know, I didn't want to do it. It just enlightened me. And it was a it was all almost like a harsh truth that had to be said. And I went away with my daughter and we both felt that we were thinking about it. And we still do. We think about how we as white people can help this situation as well and not be passive about it. So it's the not being passive that's the that's the great thing really. Yeah, it is very much so. And if you see a situation happening, then say something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's how I looked at it. You're absolutely right, Linda, that it is about saying something and standing up and, and really having some empathy with people who are in situations where you feel they are getting abused racially and, and just being allowed to recognise it as well. So that was really important for me. It made me feel uncomfortable, but I was absolutely fine with that. Because feeling uncomfortable is nothing like what people have been going through, quite frankly. So that was interesting. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. So so part of that, Linda, part of the recent Black Lives Matter demonstrations has been the demand to remove statues of those who benefited from slavery and other abuses in the past, which has happened right in the middle of lockdown. It's absolutely a fascinating moment, isn't it, in time? Not only will we remember lockdown, but we're going to remember everything else. I know. That, that's probably one of the things that we will associate with this period as well, actually, all of the demonstrations and the awful situation that, that happened in, in, in America. But you spoke, didn't you, to uh, spoken word artist Jaspreet Kaur, She calls herself a brown feminist, doesn't she? Yeah. And she talked about changing our um, our educational system so that we can better reflect the story of the British Empire and portray it in a way that's less one-sided. As a teacher in the classroom and within the education system, having these conversations about decolonising the curriculum and especially the history curriculum as a history teacher was something that I'm... I've been really passionate about, about the fact that I've had to teach this curriculum over the last couple of years that is mainly Eurocentric, white male dominated, and doesn't tell the stories of women. Mm. It doesn't tell the stories of people of colour. And it's totally kind of ignored those narratives completely. And specifically within that, when I was teaching the British Empire, it's still being taught in a way that it's, it's... it's the story of Britain, it's glamorised, it's not focusing on any of the atrocities, the, the truth of what colonisation actually looks like, 
how it's impacted those countries and those communities till this day. There's none of that image in there. So it was up to, up to me to tackle that within the classroom and then within the education system. And then finally, more recently, is decolonizing spaces like museums, um, spaces where all of these topics have been taught and portrayed in a certain way for a very long time. And we've just heard there from Jasper Kerr, spoken word artist. And there's a really interesting clip we put in there, Linda, about decolonization. And as a teacher and woman of colour, it's it's so hard, isn't it, to get round this whole idea that some part of history has either been erased or it's just missing. But of course, there's further education as well, Susie. There is a better diversity in people getting into university, isn't there, these days, which is a great thing. Yes, it is a great thing. And I'm so pleased that lots more opportunity is coming about at the moment. But one of the things that scientist Lynn Asante-Sari explains that she's really keen now to see more of the students, black students, staying in Cambridge and becoming academics. I don't think it's getting better at the graduate and sort of senior position level. So if anybody's been sort of following the news, you'll see that recently Cambridge had the biggest intake of black undergraduates um, almost ever, which is absolutely amazing. But what I try to explain to to anyone who wants to know where the issue is, is that at the higher level, so these are people who are going to teach you, people who are going to interview you, we're lacking diversity. So you can bring in as many black students, Asian students and change the the pool at, at the early level of their careers. But what we're not having is retention. We're not having students students stay on to be academics or students um, get involved in teaching. And if you don't have that and you don't have people staying in the system, you know, you're not changing the example. I don't regularly get asked, you know, as a, you know, as a black female who was here doing academics, what did we do wrong or what could we do better? Or if you didn't stay, what could we have done to, you know, to keep you? And it's a vicious cycle because if the people who should be asking these questions aren't diverse and don't have an understanding of the problems, why are they going to think, do you, do you understand? Oh, absolutely. If I, if I stay and I was a black person on a panel or in admissions, I would be the one to say, hello, can you see that we don't have enough black researchers? We don't not have enough Asian researchers because I know that area and my eyes are kind of primed to see where there's a lack of diversity because I've lived it. Yeah. But the vicious cycle is that places like this don't have that diversity. So everybody there isn't really seeing where these problems are unless somebody speaks up and says... Some people might be aware of a statement where people say black people work harder or as a black woman, I have to work harder or as a woman, I have to work harder to get to the same place. This is not saying that black students have to do more revision to get an A star A level, have to do more to get first class. What we're trying to say is that we go into work with a heavier burden. So I look back on my time in Cambridge and I think about days when I've had someone at college say something really inappropriate about my race or about something that they've heard going on in Africa. And then I have to go into the lab with that burden and still have the same amount of time to do the same amount of science as everybody else in that lab. But they're not carrying that same burden. That's what makes you tired. It's not the work. It's not... It's not that I have to read more books just to grasp the concept. I'm just as you know, academic and clever as my white counterparts. But it's that I'm carrying burdens and I'm having people say things to me and tell me I can't do things. Or, you know, if, you, if you're ever aware of what the media discusses when they talk about black academics, it's always about racism or not only less than 1% black academics or, you know, universities are complaining that there is racism. It's not being dealt with. 
very rare that you get good news about black academics in in the news. It's always about not enough, racism, etc. So when I see a story like that, I'll be thinking in my head, oh my gosh, I'm sure my colleagues have seen this and I have to go into work and I'm basically a representative of that community. It's hard. That's where the burden is. It's not the work itself. It's all the other stuff. So I get the impression then that that you would like to see more said about what you can do. That's my absolute life goal. What we need to focus on is the celebration. What have we done well? And I I always use the example of sports and music as an example because you don't look at a black musician and think, oh my gosh, look at Beyonce, she's black. You've forgotten she's black. She's She's just a good musician, right? And the same for sports people, that you celebrate them for what they've done well and you don't really care what colour they're from or whether they were from South London or not. And that's where we need to get in areas like medicine and academia. Look, celebrate us because we've got that A star and we've got first and we're doing whatever. That was Lynn Asante Asari talking about the need for more diversity at higher levels of education. And the arts, of course, are affected by inherent racism often. Casa Pancho MBE is a ballet dancer. And when she was a student, she was shocked to find a complete lack of black or Asian ballet dancers. And so now we'll be able to hear a little bit from Casa Pancho MBE from Ballet Black. I started Ballet Black because at that time in 2000. One, I was at professional dance school and was really surprised when I had arrived there three years earlier that that there were no black people or mixed race people on the teaching staff, in the student body, as someone from a mixed race background. And because I don't look like my father is from the Caribbean, I would hear a lot of comments from teachers about black students having flat feet or big bums or, or saying things like, that girl's not going to be able to turn because she's got too much hair, referring to her natural Afro hair. And I thought, well, that's interesting, isn't it? You don't know who's listening to what you're saying, so you don't know that you're being really offensive. I mean, that's the generous view. And so I decided I would write a dissertation about the lack of black women in British ballet. And my feeling has always been you need to go to a show and see yourself reflected everywhere. Um, In the future, hopefully, things will change. But I don't want you to go along to a show if you're a young black girl or boy and watch and just see that one dancer at the back that looks like you. I want you to come and see role models all over the stage. And they all might be slightly different, like someone, you know, might wear their hair like you do or someone's got braids or, you know, some of them are mixed race, some are black, some are Asian. So it is diverse in itself, but... It really upset lots of people. What was the sort of harshest reaction? Probably people saying, well, if I start ballet white, people will say that's racist, so how come you're not racist? And that was Casa Pancho, MBE, from Ballet Black that you just heard there. So we come to racism in the workplace. Much has been said recently about social structures, of course, and which hinder black people uh, from rising up the career tree. But... We spoke, or you spoke rather, Susie, actually, to a successful black barrister, didn't you? Afra Bruce Jones. I did indeed. And at the time, she was a baby barrister. She was just going to be uh, qualifying to become a barrister. So she was just in the midst of exams and really, really tough court cases. Yeah, I remember her saying that uh, when she was at school and her parents always said... 
anything's possible. And she had that in her head all the time, I think. Now, she was great. So uh, let's hear from Barrister Afra Bruce-Jones. Until very recently, unfortunately, it's a very traditional profession. It's very dominated by white men um, and it's very dominated by privileged people. It's something even now a lot of people think you have to have gone to Oxford or Cambridge to become a barrister. And when you actually look at list barristers, you go on Chambers websites, again, it disproportionately looks like everybody has gone to Oxford or Cambridge or they've got a master's from Harvard or they've worked for the UN. And actually, I've discovered the reality is a lot of people have done that, but also a lot of people haven't. It's something that was difficult for me. I think it was difficult to find somebody who looked like me not just visually but in terms of my background or who I was it was difficult to 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 find anybody who'd done this who looked like me and it was difficult there were lots of times when I was at law school where I sort of thought maybe I'm being a bit mad in trying to do this you know maybe I really am barking up the wrong tree and I sort of said to myself well I, I give myself three years if I don't make it fine I'll do something else because I didn't see anybody who I thought could relate to or just aspire to yes but then actually once I got there suddenly there they were that was Afra Bruce Jones 